All right, so it's 48 minutes in, and then at this point, I'm going to remind myself that we're cutting here, and this what's going on from this point on is for patrons, and this is just I'm putting this in here and waving at myself when I'm editing so that I can <laughs> find the spot. Okay, so um, yeah, uh, the, here the the thing that I want to bring up now. Okay, so making life into art or realizing art as a way of life rather than as a way to represent life. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, was in the early part of the Russian revolution yeah. on some people's minds. There were mm-hmm. conductors that wanted to. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes. What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a sublation media podcast. Start by reading the person's bio. You're you're a university professor at Brighton in UK. Is that right? Yeah. So okay. I'm a university lecturer. I mean, we 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 use the title professor slightly differently in the UK. Okay, so university lecturer. Um. Professor is high up in in the UK. Oh, gotcha. So I, I would be glad to promote you, but I will. Um, <laughs> so Tom Bunyan is a university lecturer at Brighton in the UK. He is the author of the book Debor, Time and Spectacle, which was published by Brill. And he has nicely agreed to talk to me about Guy Debor, Time and Chapter 4 of the Society of Spectacle today. I reached out to him because I am reading Society of Spectacle slowly but surely backwards for a video series I'm creating and I got to chapter four and I realized it was so dense and such an important chapter. I needed to call in an excerpt expert. So Tom is going to help me um, make heads or tails of it. Uh, but Tom, before we dive in to the the meat of it, um, how did you come to read DeBoer and, and, and why do you think he's still relevant today? I, I came across him initially through um, through punk, actually, um, long, 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 long time ago, um, back in back in the nineties. Because um, I mean, the, the situation's material was kind of sort of transmitted to kind of an anglophone audience initially through the kind of the radical groups in the sixties. But around the nineteen seventies, it starts getting picked up by kind of punk, and then eventually by a more kind of sort of cultural kind of milieu. And, um, and and yeah, the kind of the whole kind of eighties anarcho punk thing, which is, I was quite interested in when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. was very influenced by the situationists and uh, I, I got wind of this stuff and, and it was uh, um, I don't know there was an awful lot of kind of sort of noise about it being tremendously radical and exciting and they were, they were very rude about everybody which is all very entertaining and I didn't understand a word of it really I, I, I didn't really get it if I'm being honest mm-hmm. um, but, it, but I, I just remained interested in it and um, eventually it sort of became a bit of an obsession really just a niche I kept needing to scratch or 
sore tooth. I kept needing to poke my tongue in, and, and I just sort of stuck at it for a while. Really. Yeah, it's funny. Um, in the 90s, uh, I think it sounds like you and I are maybe of the same generation, yeah. um, which is shocking to me. You've done well. You look great. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, uh, in the 90s, I discovered uh, Guy Debord and the Situationist International through a bookstore, I just happened ac across uh, a title called "The Most Radical Gesture," which oh, was, yeah, 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 and um, which who was a friend of and uh, comrade of uh, uh, Mark Fisher. Mm. They were in the the cybernetic, cybernetic uh, you know, exploration unit or whatever that was called, and um, so I read that book first, and then I was interested, deeply interested in Debor, and and I, and then I read. Kyle Marcus's book, Lipstick Traces. Yes. And then I decided maybe I should listen to punk. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, that's, that was my path. So, um, and do you think that despite the fact that the reason that you discovered uh, the SI and Gita Bohr was partly because of the kind of popular milieu that you were in, the, the punk scene, mm -hmm. that it has, um, it reaches beyond the, that aesthetic uh, and that yeah. kind of well, what really was a commodified uh, rebellion, that punk rock scene, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's completely fair, although, although I'd, I'd, I'd want to say that there's some kind of interesting worthwhile aspects to it. Um, mm -hmm. but, um, but in terms of the kind of the reach of the SI or, or whatever, um, I mean, it, it's had an impact on the kind of the old kind of activist milieu, which is what the situation is initially wanted to be doing. I mean, I mean, that's who they were. They felt they were speaking to, or, or whatever, perhaps or to some degree. Um, but it's also had an impact on academia in a big way, particularly from the eighties, late eighties, nineties onwards. Um, and, and it's been picked up by a whole number of different disciplines, and uh, and has been a very useful reference point for, for for lots of people in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. Do you teach Debor? Not much, actually. Um, a, a, a little bit here and there, but um, but but no, I, I I find I'm really bad when I teach it actually because I know a bit too much about it and I I just sort of burble and oh here's a thing and here's another thing and here's another thing and here's another thing and I'm, I'm kind of crap <laughs> right. when I do that. I'm much better when I talk about stuff I don't know very much about. So. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, well, uh, nonetheless, I want you to teach me today. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, I mean, I think we both have some familiarity with with the, these concepts, but um, but they're open enough, and there's a they're they're controversial enough, and they've been mis misread in a variety of ways over the years mm -hmm. that it's worth going over. Um, so, like for instance, in the in the Pacific Northwest, uh, the primitivist anarchist movement tends to be or was interested in Guy Debord and the Situationists and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, would quote the Society of the Spectacle as a way to justify their romantic desire to return to primitive ways of being, you know, even up to uh, avoiding or, or, or getting beyond the need for language. You know, yeah. like that, that was yet another kind of spectacle, according to John Zerzion. Or, um, but what, what is uh, Guy Debord's concept of the spectacle really all about? Do you think, <laughs> what, is, what is the spectacle? And why doesn't 
he just write about capitalism? Yeah. Okay, really good question. Um, I mean, it's kind of the question, isn't it? I, I, I mean, it, it's ever so difficult to pin down what the, what this concept actually is. Um, and and he, he, you know, he never really gives his definitions. Um, you know, he, he's not interested in, in kind of doing that. And, and one of the things we could perhaps talk about is the the peculiar way in which he writes and how that corresponds to the ideas that he's trying to communicate, because there is mm-hmm. a kind of a rationale behind it. But, but a kind of a rough and really kind of working definition of spectacle that, that, that I, I want to use um, is that it's really uh, can, instances of spectacle emerge where communities of people become subordinate to instances uh, of their own collective power, um, essentially. And that's a deliberately broad definition of the concept because it corresponds not just to the commodity, which brings that problem to uh, an enormous extreme, uh, but it also corresponds to ideology, to religion, to um, to the media, which is what one of the things that the, the term is often used to refer to, to revolutionary figureheads and, and leaders and, and hierarchy and so on and so forth. I mean, it's enormously broad, um, but the term is used to refer to all of these different kind of phenomena. So, so that's the kind of the working definition that I've been using um, as a means of gathering together the various phenomena that are referred to as, as spectacle. And I think it maps onto textual um, evidence. One of the ways when I was really young, uh, you know, when I first encountered De Boer, that I thought about the spectacle was in terms of, uh, you know, movie stars and mm-hmm. television personalities and, yeah. and um, how our relationship with celebrities um, was compensatory. And so we, we might have a, an aesthetic or, or a sensibility or an ambition and rather than try to live out that ambition and develop our character in that direction, we instead consume images of that kind of thing on television or in movies mm-hmm. uh, and become passive observers of, of a, of a life that we can't live. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we go to see James Bond movies in order to feel like we have some sort of adventure in our life or that we can, we can be influential in the, on the world stage or have some heroic uh, moment of, of saving the world or something like that. Um, that that's just the surface of what he's talking about. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. And, um, so, I mean, as a sort of anecdote, I remember giving a talk about um, uh, this stuff at a, a conference um, some years ago, and I was talking about how the how the it, it stems from Feuerbach and and uh, Marx and bits of Hegel and Lukács and all the rest of this stuff. And there was a guy in the audience who got a bit cross with me, and he said, "Look, I teach this stuff to my A level students, and A level students are like sort of 16, 17 years old, and they don't need to know anything about Lukács or Feuerbach and all the rest of it. They just know that they're being presented with bullshit through um, TV screens and images. That's enough." And uh, I was like, yeah, okay, that, that, that is enough for, for, for what you're doing. But, and, and I don't want to disrespect that, right? That, that's a totally, mm-hmm. That is part of what Deborah is talking about. In Thesis 6, he mm-hmm. does refer to news, advertising, entertainment as particular forms of spectacle. So that's part of the story. But it's not all of the story. Mm-hmm. In Thesis 5, uh, he says explicitly, let me get it, because this is quite important. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the spectacle cannot be understood either as a deliberate distortion of the visual world or as a product of the technology of the mass dissemination of images. That's really explicit. That's right at the very beginning of the book. Um, and then if we go to thesis 24, um, he says, 
um, mass media are the spectacle's most stultifyingly superficial manifestation, right? So, so it's stultifyingly superficial. It's part of what's going on, right? It's part of what he's talking about, but it's not all of what he's talking about. It's a surface uh, phenomenon. Mm. And, and, and the way into it, I think, um, with the, the kind of the, um, the dynamic between the image and the observer, the passive observer and the kind of the active image, is um, sort of paradigmatic for the general problem that he's talking about in this book. And the general problem that he's talking about in this book is that this is a society that's become separated from its ability to shape and determine its own history, its own lived time, its ability to shape its own future. Right, the, the mm-hmm. idea that this peculiar claim that we are somehow um, passive observers of our own lives—it's um, at least informed by. I mean, the, the French word "spectacle" has a sense of performance, show. In a sense, we are playing roles, we're playing parts in a, in a performance, if you like, mm-hmm. and we do so um, because we're uh, acting out roles, performing the parts, um, following the desires and the ambitions and the aspirations, which are. Uh, shaped, he thinks, to a very large extent by an economic system that's effectively become autonomous from its producers, right? Mm. So, so we're presented with kind of templates, patterns of behavior, images, uh, as he calls them, which we then enact, um, kind of make real, so, so, so life becomes a representation, if you like. Mm. Um, the overall story is that there's a sense in which we become passive observers of a world that we have created uh, and that we then become passengers in our own history, essentially. So heavily informed by kind of bits of French existentialism and Hegelianism, um, not just talking about the mass media. And and I I don't think just talking about the commodity. I I think that the idea is, um, I forget which thesis it is, but he says, you know, uh, the spectacle corresponds to the moment in which the commodity completes its colonization of everyday life. Mm. That's what, creates this general problem. But I think that the, the, the basic issue that he's talking about is something that's much older. Uh, and that's uh, the general problem is separated social power where collectivities of people become subordinate to their own constructions, uh, as in religion, uh, as in hierarchy. I mean, the king is just a man, the throne is just a chair, mm. gold is just you know, yellow metal. Um, mm. We create these kind of... Um, formations which have power over us but the, the power that they, they have is the power we give them right right so it's, yeah it's, you it's go ahead no so, so sorry no, just no, no, okay. grand extension of the notion of fetishism yeah 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 so one of the ways to think about this and i think he mentioned he he, he writes about this um i think it's in the fifth chapter uh, i believe what is about the failure to become modern in a way or the failure to hold on to the enlightenment um to failure to become individuals who can participate in history uh you know in traditional societies there wasn't an a linear conception of history where things would progress and and you would be able to shape changes in society but rather you know there was a a sensibility that time was cyclical Mm -hmm. that you had a place within a repeating order um, that was defined by God or your your church or you know the religious order, and um, the spectacle is is a, a peculiar version of that kind of traditional society, re, re, repurposed to fit into industrial commodity 
yes, society. Um, so rather than uh, a society where everything uh, is cyclical and everything repeats and we, we know who, who we're going to be our entire lives, instead we have this pseudo-cyclical time in which there's change, constant cultural change even, but it's not change that anyone is in charge of. Mm. And and there's a cyclical, there's an essentially cyclical component of it as capital uh, reproduces itself um, in the same ways. Um, so th- that's uh, one of the key ideas of the spectacle for me, I think, is that it is the way in which maybe bourgeois society re- uh, has failed to live up to its own ideals, failed yes. to... To become yes, more yes, uh, I, I, I think I think that's right. It's a, a very good way of putting it. I think. And, I mean, the, the the you know the the, the common kind of view, you know, the, the popular view, is, is that the science of the spectacle is, is a book about the mass media, right? And that's at least partly informed by the you know that kind of iconic image which is on the front cover of the Perelman translation, which is now kind of indelibly associated with the book, with all the, yeah. the, the people sitting in the cinema. Mm-hmm. The general view is this is about about the mass media, but if it's about media why does it have two entire chapters about time um and why does that fifth chapter about time start with like neolithic society you know i, I mean it, it is <laughs> right right the perspective that he's setting out in that chapter is extraordinarily ambitious it, it's all human history this mm-hmm. is how i understand it um but but yeah you, um you, you're right um it's one of the peculiarities of it is it's a kind of um a sort of a retrospective philosophy of history told from the perspective of the contemporary revolution, at least as he understands it. And, and the revolution that he thinks is imminent within his society is a revolution against the problem of spectacle, right? the you know, spectacular society. And he's looking back at kind of history from that perspective in his present moment. And history is then told uh, as a slow progressive uh, realization um, that I suppose that we are historical creatures, we make ourselves, we make our world in time, but we don't always do so in ways that we're fully in control of. Uh, and, and, and the story is that as humanity's uh, awareness of historical change has grown, as its ability to shape uh, and change itself in its world has grown, uh, at the same time, that power to shape the world has become increasingly divorced from its producers. Uh, and, and, and you end up with this kind of strange contradiction that he sees in his, his moment, uh, where that power is enormous on the one hand, and we're totally separated from it on, on the other. And the, um, he, there's a nice phrase, actually. Yeah, so thesis 33, though separated from his products, man is more and more and ever more powerfully the producer of every detail of his world. The closer his life comes to being his own creation, the more drastically he's come off from that life. But that's at the end of chapter one. Uh, but I see chapter five as kind of um, leading up to that. And it goes through the cyclical time of, of early societies, um, which you refer to, which is governed by the seasons. Uh, you then start having a linear sense of time where you start having from the division of labor. He introduces history into the story as soon as you get the division of labor. Some people decide what they're going to do, other people do it. Um, this, you, you then get the kind of the sense of kind of. Um, uh, the adventures of the kind of the barons and the kings and all the rest of this stuff, their kind of stories of history, which is about the rulers. Um, this carries on until we get the rise of capitalist society. And with the rise of capitalist society and the bourgeoisie, there's an increased sense of historical change um, because the world is clearly that much more mutable uh, and it becomes much more kind of wedded to everyday experience. 
And yet at the same time, it's so much more removed from anyone's ability to really kind of control it. So he says towards the end of that cha- fifth chapter, the bourgeoisie unveiled historical time only to deprive society of its use. And, and chapter four, uh, which is the chapter I believe you're interested in, um, starts effectively in the wake of the bourgeois revolutions. And it, it's a struggle mm-hmm. to take control of that new historical existence, which has been inaugurated, inaugurated sorry, by the rise of capitalist society. Um, mm-hmm. so, so, yeah. So, yeah, the that fourth chapter is, presents a, you know, you said the I think the fifth chapter was a really uh, ambitious because it presented all of human history. I think so. Uh, right. Well, I think the fourth chapter is even more ambitious, even though it's, <laughs> it's focused just on socialism because it's presenting this history of socialist struggle, which when you just start to, you know, poke at it and look at, at the at the depth of it is, um, you know, it's harder to gloss than all of human history some somehow strangely um but uh which is why again i called you in on this but just to round this out a, a bit more that i mean we're talking about the way in which commodity production industrial society and and bourgeois relations um create a, a an alienation from time mm, yeah uh, as a definitive uh, aspect of our social life, um, and and there's a need to create the term spectacle, because um, otherwise you're going to be just talking about the fetish nature of the commodity, or you're only going to be talking about um, the culture industry as Adorno did, or you're going to be talking about um, I don't know uh, the family structure, um, and and you and the spectacle is a way in which to get a label to all of it mm-hmm. in its social in its in its kind of sensuous uh, uh, experience and also uh, beyond that in in um, in terms of how it directs our activity into the future and, and as, as in reference to what it does to time yeah is that right yeah, I, I, so, so, so um, I, I'm not so sure that we're kind of alienated from time. Maybe it's more about um, uh, a kind of poverty of self-determinacy, uh, a kind of existential poverty, if, if you like. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a sense in which um, uh, history, perhaps rather than time, becomes something that's kind of alien and separate and something that we merely contemplate and, and look at. Uh, look, look at, and 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 the the overall claim is, is that um, well, I mean, one of the letters to his translators, to I think it's to the Italian section of the Situationists, when they're interested in translating some of it, he gives a little kind of synopsis of some of what the chapters are about, uh, and, and um, chapter five, uh, the way he describes chapter five, I, I, I take it to stand for the whole book, which is that it presents uh, historical time as the milieu and goal of the proletarian revolution. It's the milieu because that's where it takes place, but it's also the goal. And the overall aim is to um, take collective possession of our our own historical existence, to cease being kind of passengers, uh, as as it were, uh, within this kind of society. Now, you you said, why not, why use the term spectacle rather than kind of fetishism, rather than the commodity, so on and so forth? Right. I mean, or the family, or the culture yeah. industry. You know, rather than I guess that fragments. Yeah, the, the yeah, it's 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 a it's a good question. Um, 
I mean, I mean, if you want to think about it in terms of the kind of development of his ideas, I mean, one one kind of sort of genealogical answer would be that it's because he's starting off thinking about art, effectively, the relationship between the observer and the art object, and it kind of de develops from there in some sort of complicated and peculiar ways. But we could leave that out and just talk about the book. Um, and I think what he's doing by the time he starts writing that book, 65, published in 67, is he's trying to grasp what he takes as the, the kind of the revolutionary problematic of his moment. He's, that's, that's what he says he's doing, right? That, that, that it's an attempt to grasp his society, his moment as a totality. And he says in one of his letters, I, I, I can't remember the quotation properly, but that, that it's only the revolutionary perspective that can truly grasp totality. Because the reason being, presumably, uh, that that's a perspective which is about making history, seeing how things change, is the perspective of change, um, ultimately. So he's trying to grasp the, the, the kind of the revolutionary problematic of, of an entire moment. He uses the term to spectacle to do this. The term, I think, is meant to, and he says at the beginning, um, where is it? I forget the thesis now, but he says it quite explicitly that it's meant to encompass a whole range of different phenomena under one general rubric. Uh, and, and, and the things that you mentioned, um, the commodity, uh, the family, I, I forget what else you said, fall under that general rubric because the problem he sees in the 1960s is... Um, the need to supersede all forms of separated social power, all forms of hierarchy, all forms of kind of um, arbitrary authority, which is why he says in, in, in chapter four, you know, the, 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 the tired, I can't remember the quotation there, but, you know, the revolution movement um, can no longer combat alienation of alienated means, yeah. uh, you know, all, all, all this kind of stuff, you know, that we can't have leaders, we can't have figureheads, because that's part of the problem that he's trying to get a, a rid of, and that 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 kind of dynamic, uh, sort of metaphorical dynamic of the image and the observer, the passive observer of, of, of something active, and the need to supersede that in order to be that thing that, that that's active. That's the kind of the, the, the governing idea which he uses to kind of um, handle a whole range of different issues and put them under this one kind of central problem. Um. Well, let's let's in a moment let's talk about chapter four. I mean, I, I kind of want to talk about the way in which Debor wrote Society Spectacle now. Um, but before I do, I want to just read you a quote from something altogether different because it came to mind. Um, it's from Terence McKenna. You remember who Terence McKenna was? Do you ever hear, hear of him? Probably no. not. He was an no. American phenomenon. Right. Uh, in the nineties, he was like the new Tim Leary. Okay. He'd go on lecture tours, talk about how we all need to take psilocybin mushrooms, and oh, okay. and, and at the end of history, uh, uh, you know, the we would interiorize the body and exteriorize the soul, and all that kind of. And the aliens were coming, and we could talk to the machine elves if we. But um, but but he wrote. He said, uh, in one of his rants, um, he said, "This is a nightmarish thing which McLuhan and others foresaw: the creation of the public." The public has no history, has no future, lives in a golden, golden moment created by credit, which binds them intellectually to a fascist system that is never criticized. And it, it's, he's almost landing on yeah. kind of a situationist uh, critique, but yeah. you know, it's a little yeah. too stoned to fully get there. Um, so, 
uh, uh, but DeBoer, he 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 plagiarized his way mm-hmm. through Society Spectacle, but but not just plagiarized, but he yeah. like, he altered texts. He he detourned, I think is how you might say it. Um, and what does that have to do with overcoming this uh, separation, this passivity, uh, this loss of uh, of self determination, um, and and loss of history? Okay. Um, well, yeah. I, 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 as you say, so so so, so the um, well, there's quite a few things to say about the way the book is written. Um, but mm-hmm. but in the most obvious, most famous is, is the use of bitumen, um, which is uh, I suppose perhaps easily understood as kind of certainly in the society of the spectacle, it's about taking pieces from other texts and kind of altering them and changing them ever so slightly, repositioning them in a new setting. But, it, but the, the concept is broader than that, and the situation is used it a great deal. The most famous examples are the kind of the comic strips where they kind of change the, the speech bubbles and stuff. Mm. The Boers films all made from snippets and bits of other films and, and all the rest of this, this, this mm. kind of stuff. In the society of the spectacle, what he's doing by and large um, is taking bits from often from the text that he's influenced by uh, and, and that he thinks are important, kind of um, things from the past that kind of mattered, uh, but perhaps have gone stale, have kind of, kind of gone dead in some sense, or they've been a, a incorporated into the existing system, however you want to put it, um, and giving them new life by, by, by making them an active force again, if you like. And he's doing so by putting them in a new context and kind of tweaking them and, and changing them. Um, and, and there's many, many um, examples scattered throughout the text. Um, one of the weirdnesses about it, though, um, is that he never tells you, you know, I mean, that would kind of defeat the point. You know, he doesn't want to make things too easy, which is another thing. But, but, but your, your question, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent. Your question is, why does he do that? Um, I don't think it's just ornamental. I, I, you know, I mean, I mean, one way of describing it would be, oh, it's just a funny thing he does. Um, but I don't think that gives it enough kind of gravity. Um, I, th- I think one of the things he was concerned about um, was trying to actualize what he's actually talking about in the text itself, right? And, and the overall theme, I was thinking about this today, thinking about how I could try to express this and sort of getting a bit muddled. I mean, I mean, in a sense, the book is, it, it, it's all about imminence in some sense. It's kind of moved away from any kind of transcendental external position uh, and, and, and something being kind of actually being one uh, with the thing that's being kind of talked about in a sense, actualizing it, uh, ex- expressing it and all the rest of it being very unclear i think i think the point is um he doesn't want to just represent a critique of spectacle he wants to actually do practically the kind of the destruction of spectacle right mm. now, now i mean he, he says um uh one of the theses in chapter eight or chapter nine he says you know the concept of spectacle would just become another empty another empty formula of socio-political political rhetoric if we don't put it into practice Right, if it if it's just a kind of a theory about the world, um, because an awful lot of what he's doing is kind of riffing on, um, you know, Marx's thesis and Feuerbach. The philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it, mm-hmm. right? But but in some respects, that's a kind of a sort of motif for the entire book. Uh, that need to move away from any kind of representative contemplative detachment uh, in order to actually actualize critique as a kind of practical transformative force in the world. That's part of the critique of spectacle. And that has to play out in the book itself. If he's just talking about it rather than actually doing it, then he's kind of falling short. Now, on one level, he wants this book to be picked up and used. And he says repeatedly, it'll only be true, true 
if it's used and employed in revolutionary action. But mm. I think to some degree, he's actually trying to do it in the pages. Right? I, I, I think he's actually trying to instantiate the very critique of spectacular culture that he's talking about as he mm. talks about it. And I think so. So you've got the use of the term, what that's part of it. But I think also it's the almost the opacity of, of the text, the total refusal to make any kind of concessions whatsoever to a society that he completely despises, right? I mean, it's, it's a hard, spiky, angry, difficult text. And I think it's meant to be, right? I, I, I think it's, it's meant to be a bit of a kind of um, a punch rather than the kind of a persuasive argument. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever heard of the term culture jamming? Yes. Yeah, so... Um, there was a uh, uh, an art band called um, Negative Land, and it, beyond that, there were many different ways in which there was art busters. And, uh, yeah. yeah, no ad busters, not art busters, yeah. ad busters, um, and culture jamming had uh, a cachet. It was it was a popular idea in the '90s, I think, and maybe into the early 2000s. But um, and it seems to me that what that was a debasement of Detournement, mm-hmm. uh, in a way, um, that culture jamming was like uh, changing the the words on a on a billboard uh, to subvert the uh, idea, or taking a commercial jingle and turning it into uh, a, a, a some agitprop, uh, and that's fine. But the what he was uh, taking up was the highest forms of revolutionary and uh, uh, philosophical uh, inquiry and expression. Like he starts by altering Marx, yes. you yeah. know, in a society where, uh, you know, industrial production prevails, something like that is a, ma- a society of mass accumulation of commodities turned yeah. into spectacles. Um, so it seemed to me that he's trying to, as he changes these texts and, and puts them into his book, He's trying to take up revolutionary theory and use it mm-hmm. rather than just make it a, uh, something he is passively understanding. He's trying to use write a text that will actually help people uh, create a revolution in that moment. Yes. And um, uh, he's writing to the young people yes. of the 60s, to the new left yes. that's coming up. Yeah, I, I, I think that's actually right. But, but it is... It, it, it's weirdly kind of paradoxical, you know. I, I mean, the, the I mean, as, as, as I think you said, you found yourself you came across it kind of in sort of in the nineties, you know, because it's it's become famous. It's mm. a really difficult book, right? I mean, I mean, I really bounced off it the first time I read it. I, I mean, I think yeah. many people do, it, but, but it's it, it's strange that a book that's this difficult and this opaque um, could be so influential. But I think people who read it kind of respond to it right they kind of recognize it they, they see something in it but then it's perhaps quite hard to articulate it so there's right. a kind of poetic aspect to it which i think is probably quite deliberate right mm. and I, I remember talking to um uh Ansam Yak, the uh he, he wrote a very good book about um the book uh, quite a time i published him when i was over at, at zero books yeah well i, I had a chat with, with, with Ansam um um 
just about 10 years ago now, actually. And I, 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 I gave a talk about Devorah, and he was in the audience, which was a bit intimidating. Um, but I, I had a, a chat with him afterwards, and he said, that it's all very good, but, you know, your problem is you're trying to define what spectacle is, and you can't do that. It's as much a kind of, sort of poetic idea as it is um, a kind of a, a theoretical philosophical concept. And he, I think, you know, there's something to that. Um, I'm not entirely sure I agree, though. I, I, I want to give the board a bit more kind of credit. I think there is a lot more kind of philosophical substance to it. But mm. the point, sorry, tired and rambling, um, it's strange that the book can be so influential when it's so difficult. And also when his ambition was to articulate, to kind of give theoretical voice to the demands and struggles of a particular moment. And, and mm. that, 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 that I'm quite certain is what he, he felt he, he was trying to do. Uh, and yet he does it in this kind of weirdly kind of artistic kind of gnomic manner. Um, and and it's, maybe it's actually useful to, to, to say this. Um, he, he gets very interested in kind of Hegel and, and Marx and Hegelian Marxism and a whole kind of package of kind of writers and ideas uh, in that kind of area towards the end of the 1950s and around the, around the early 1960s. Uh, and one of the big themes that comes to the fore there um, is the idea of the realisation of philosophy which he gets from Marx's early stuff. Uh, I mean, the, the famous lines are in uh, the introduction to Marx's uh, contribution to critique of Hegel's philosophy of right. And, mm. and, and the, the, the basic idea there is um, Marx says, you young Hegelians, you're all criticising religion and saying religion is just a lie, it's all just a myth. Um, but that's not enough. If you really want to get rid of the religious illusion, uh, you've got to address the material conditions which make people want the religious illusion. And if you're going to do that, what you've really got to do is give the people on the ground the kind of the theoretical kit to understand their circumstances so that they can go about changing their circumstances. Mm -hmm. right? and, and this leads, uh, by the end of the introduction, to the kind of the famous line that philosophy has to become realised, has to become a kind of a practical force in the world. Critical mm -hmm. philosophical thought can't just be a description about the world. It has to become an active force in the world. And it becomes an active force in the world by helping to articulate and express the, um, the demands and the struggles and the predicament of a given moment by clarifying um, what these people are actually facing. And that's what the boss sees himself as, as doing. I think that's what he's trying to do in this book. And, and the weird thing is that he then makes it really quite opaque. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because I've, I've, when I read the book in, in the 90s, of course, I was not any kind of uh, Marxist or revolutionary. I was a 20-year-old college student. Um, but over time, I've been more and more deeply involved in the American left. Um, and I even went in out of a sectarian Marxist group. I've read more, uh, like, you know, uh, I don't know, just read more. And... Um, and so if you compare the Boer to Adorno mm -hmm. or to Lukash or even to Marx himself, um, he's not he's not that opaque. You know, especially if you've yeah. read Marx and you've read Hegel and you've read uh, Lukash, um, you start. To, uh, it seems to me, especially uh, reading chapter four, that he is writing within the socialist revolutionary tradition that's right like, that he is he is writing to the workers movement and the socialist movement he's writing to the people who would a few years before like a decade before 
um, the Situationist International Publisher Society Inspector or whoever published it before that book was published a decade earlier, he would have been writing to the Hungarian uh, Workers' Party members who were trying to break from the Soviet Union. He would have been writing to the people in East Berlin uh, in '53, and and he was, and and um, he was definitely on that side of the of the social struggle. Yeah, uh, I think, and uh, so. If once you contextualize it that way, I think it becomes a little bit easier to understand. Yes, um, that, that, that's, that's, that's certainly true. Um, and sorry, I, I guess I, I think I'm perhaps I'm overstating it a, a little bit. I, I mean, one, one thing that has to be... Well, which, what, what's important to realize is it's, oh, is opaque because we're so far away from that struggle now, especially yeah. we were in the 90s, you know, in the, in the 80s, that, that struggle had seemed like... You know, I could read about that or I could have read about, you know, uh, Queen Victoria or I could have read about cave paintings. It was all ancient history, you know. Well, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a great letter from 74 or something like that. I forget. Mm-hmm. When. Um, and he's, he's writing to, to someone who's written to him with some questions about the book. Uh, and it's a really illuminating letter. Um, and, and one of the remarks he says right at the beginning is he says that obviously one cannot understand this book without Marx and especially Hegel, right? It's mm-hmm. completely explicit, you, you know. I mean, but, but I guess my, my point would be, um, on the one hand, yes, if you do read Marx and you do read Hegel and you do read Lukács and Feuerbach and you go through the German ideology and, and all the other material that he's drawing on, um, I, I, when I did that, I was like, oh, right, okay. You know, it, it all starts to make sense, right? Mm, yeah. Um, but if you haven't done that, um, it's quite a challenge. And, and, and yeah. I suppose all, all I'm trying to say is if the aim is to somehow articulate the kind of the, the kind of the, the demands of, of, you know, you know, the man on the street, if you like, um, it's strange to do it through this kind of poetic um, way. But right. yeah, well, time, it's one that we respond to and, and recognize. And think. Right. Right. Yeah. We do recognize it for sure. Yeah. And I did too in the nineties. There was something about, about the way he was talking and the, and the revolutionary spirit of it that even though I didn't follow along that well, I didn't get past the idea of, oh, yeah, if I watch TV all day instead of go out and live my life, I'm not going to have a life and I'm a passive spectator. You know? mm-hmm. um, didn't get beyond that. Uh, I did get beyond just staying inside and watching TV all day occasionally. But the point here <laughs> is um, uh, that I did respond to it, but I wonder if in 67, if the radical student movement and workers movement at that time had been, would be more likely to have engaged with Marx and Trotsky and Lenin and, and, uh, and, and Mao even, and, and uh, Lukash and Marcuse and, you know, to have be kind of aware of that history of, of socialist struggle. Yes, I, I, I think that's right. And, and the other thing that's worth mentioning is, is I think one of the reasons why um, I, 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 I don't want to start kind of knocking people who write about this book and refer, you know, use it to put media studies and kind of contemporary capitalist visual culture, because contemporary capitalist visual culture and the mass media is obviously really, really important. And it, you know, I, I don't want to start knocking that. But, mm-hmm. but I think one of the reasons why the book has become so... Um, so we used in that area is because when it first got picked up and used by academia, it did so at a time when Marx and Hegel and all the rest of that stuff had kind of fallen from fashion. Um, it, it, it's picked up 
by by academia, certainly anglophone academia, uh, really in the kind of the nineties, and, and that's at a point where everyone's kind of terribly excited about kind of French post-structuralism, and you know you, you've got the idea that kind of Marx and Hegel are in some respects are the bad totalitarians. We don't we don't like this kind of stuff. It, mm-hmm. It's kind of out of fashion in some regards, and yet. Mm-hmm. When De Boer says that you know you're not going to understand my book without Marx and Hegel, um, that's already setting it up for a kind of a rather literal understanding of this kind of visual terminology. Right, and you know, again, I I, I discovered the book by reading Sadie Plant's book, The Most Radical mm-hmm. Gesture, and that book was about the relationship yeah. of Situationist International yeah. to post-structuralism, yeah. um, uh, and it was sort of a, an argument to go back. To to retreat back into the SI and to mm-hmm. reject the postmodern turn, I think. Yeah, uh, it's but, a good book. Yeah, yeah, it's not bad at all. And and I've been trying for years, over a decade now, to get Sadie Plant to come <laughs> on and talk to me, but I can't get I can't reach her. Um, but uh, one last question before, and then I want to talk about the uh, the fourth the chapter, and I think the fourth the conversation about the fourth chapter. I'm going to the first when it first comes out. I'm just going to give to people who pay a little bit extra for the Patreon, you know, and, and let them swatch it if that's okay with you. Uh, and then I'll release it again later. Um, because that's the, as I say, that's the part I, I really want to talk about, but this is all a very important preamble to, to that conversation, I think. But I want to ask you, have you seen DeBoer's movie mm-hmm. inside the spectacle and why is it that he, and, and the situation is international had this ambivalent relationship to the art world and to uh, the surrealists and to Dada, how did they see themselves coming out of those movements? Uh, I suppose my kind of rough and ready answer would be that they saw themselves as kind of picking up the baton that had been dropped, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know the, 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 the idea is that, um, that maybe this is helpful for another reason actually. So, so, so De Boer's pretty consistent in saying that he dates the emergence of a fully kind of spectacular society to the early decades of the 20th century. Um, and and the, that I think grows from an earlier set of ideas that he had before he really starts getting this theory of spectacle up and running. Um, you know, as back in the 1950s before he's really kind of got, got involved in this kind of stuff in a, in a really big way. And, and uh, the argument he has for the construction of situations um, is, is really about a response to a stagnant culture. Uh, and it's a stagnant culture that's kind of frozen because of the lack of, of revolution. And the idea is, um, in the lead-up to the early decades of the 20th century, and around that time, you have the potential conflicts of two lines of development. On the one hand, you've got the avant-garde, and on the other hand, you've got the workers' movement. The workers' movement is in the ascendance, it's getting powerful, and there's a push towards kind of transforming the world and creating better conditions of life and all the rest of it. On the other hand, in the avant-garde, he seems to think that art basically is killing itself off as a means of representing life uh, and, and gesturing perhaps towards art becoming a means of making life, right? So, so, so if you think about, you know, Malevich and the Bike Square and Duchamp and all the rest of this stuff, Dada attacks the kind of the, the special elevated magical religious status of art and kind of ridicules it and laughs at it and, and destroys it surrealism starts gesturing towards um what it what we might do instead you know the, the, the desire to kind of unite art and life dream and the imagination and, 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 and everyday life and all the rest of this stuff um, and there's a potential combination of these two things that the revolutionary movement could combine with the avant-garde 
to actually create a, a, a totally new form of life, a kind of a society of realized arts, right? This is mm-hmm. a possible combination in the early decades of the 20th century, but it doesn't happen. Uh, it, it, it falls short for a bunch of different reasons. And, you know, the, the work is made, as he would put it, collapses into its own representation. Surrealism starts to become kind of stagnant and all the rest of it. Uh, mm-hmm. The commodity triumphs. Uh, and you have uh, what he calls a decom- earlier his early term is a, com- a decomposing culture. Mm-hmm. It's kind of rotting. It's stagnant. It's stuck. Uh, it needs to move forwards. The way to move forwards is to um, uh, unite art and life. That's what what we need to do. Um, but that can't happen because and, and here he starting to develop the idea that we're in a kind of a way of life which is dominated and structured by the commodity, by the economy, into a set of kind of fixed patterns and all the rest of it. Life is structured and dictated in various ways, and, and the, the 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 idea of the situation, the constructive situation, starts off as about a kind of response to this. So, so the desire to kind of shape, live time, to take take charge of one's own life, to construct situations. By the time you got into the nineteen sixties, that's now become this much more explicitly revolutionary vision of transforming um, the world in various ways. But a way of summarising all of this would be, if I can find it. There's a, a lovely thesis um, in, um, where has it gone? Um, I'll, do, I'll do it from memory, I can't find which one it is. But, but it, it, it's, it's, in, it's in the chapter on negation and consumption uh, in, in, in culture, and he says that the Dada tried to kind of destroy art without realising it. Um, surrealism uh, was interested in kind of realising art without destroying it. And what we're now going to do is we're going to destroy art in order to realize it. That's you're going to they're going to sublate it. Yeah, and it's it's all coming back at that idea of the realization of philosophy, right? right. And, and when when they split in '62, they uh, um, the Boris faction kind of kicks out the practicing artists. Um, the kind of the um, the slogan or whatever the phrase would be um, that kind of encapsulates that maxim, if you like, the maxim that they think we we now have is the SI must now realize philosophy. Um, right, we, we need to kind of um, take charge of live time. Uh, we need to make critique a practical force in the world. We need to make art no longer a means of representing life, but it's now going to become actualized as a means of transforming them. All right, so it's 48 minutes in, and then at this point, I'm going to remind myself that we're cutting here, and this what's going on from this point on is for patrons. And this is just I'm putting this in here and waving at myself when I'm editing.